what I'd like for you to punch in is an answer to this question. Uh, what do you suppose Jesus most wants to capture in your life? <clears throat> now, uh, we can't moderate this, so please keep things decently and in order. All right? Um, words are going to flash up on the screen as people are submitting their things. Uh, we won't know exactly who is who, so uh, you can feel free to live in your anonymity. But what do you suppose Jesus most wants to capture in your life? Um, uh, maybe we ask it this way. What, what do you suppose is one of the most difficult and even painful places for us to invite Jesus into? Um, if we have this feeling that Jesus is one that can really make a difference in various areas of our lives, what might seem like the hardest place where he can actually make a difference? Uh, or what do you suppose is the most hopeless part of us? All right, we got any, um, uh, so time, emotional, my health, obedience, spiritual fear, finances, um, school, faith, physical. Wow, time is, a, time, is, time is pretty popular. Everything, all right, there we go. Everything, it's all a disaster. Um, uh, yeah, obedience. What else? Our deepest thoughts, our attention, serving. What does Jesus most want to capture in our lives? My purpose, worry, anxiety, fear, growth, consistency. All right, very good. Uh, marriage, devotion. All right. So, um, Precisely kind of what I'm looking for that I want to talk about this morning is related to so many of those things. Um, I don't see that anybody specifically put the word there, uh, but what I want to talk about this morning is our desires. Um, we have all kinds of desires. There are desires that we're okay with having. Uh, there are desires that we wish we didn't have or that are what we might describe as unwanted desires. There are desires that we struggle with. Uh, there are desires that will often amount to like a temptation to sin. Um, the reality is that this thing, what, uh, you know, that we might call what I want, um, right? Another way of sort of putting uh, out for desire, like what I want is an absolutely uh, incredibly powerful force in my life. Uh, and so... I think one of the questions we want to look at is, is it the most powerful? Um, does our desire essentially have this, um, this precedence, this kind of first place in our lives where it, it becomes a more powerful force uh, than maybe something else that is better? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to finish up this chapter this morning. Um, some of the verses I'm not going to read, you can do that. Uh, but I want to start in verse 12, just read a few verses here and talk a little bit about what Paul wants for us to understand regarding our desires. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul says, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. 
However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Um, so what's going on here is, uh, and this is sort of commonly understood to be the case, that when Paul says everything is permissible for me, some of your Bibles might have that statement in quotation marks. And the reason is because interpreters are largely in agreement that this amounted to something like a slogan. Uh, so what Paul is actually doing is he is quoting the Corinthian church on one of their popular sayings, one of the things that really had come to define the culture of who they were, right? So he says, you say, in essence, you say everything is permissible for me. Um, uh, we have to understand that the first converts to Christianity were largely Jewish people. Uh, and Jewish people couldn't have imagined um, that the ceremonial laws and the regulations and uh, all the laws that they followed as Jewish people wouldn't still apply um, as they uh, became followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, everything, it was expected that everything that made you a good Jew, uh, whether it was the, the kosher laws, uh, ceremonial laws, or even this, uh, what amounted to a pretty overbearing and very complicated religious um, system that few people could live up to or few people could even understand. Uh, it, was, it was thought that, that all of those things would be brought into this sort of new way of understanding ourselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus. Um, over time, though, um, word kind of got out that people were becoming Christians and were experiencing a move of God in their lives, and yet they weren't doing all of the Jewish things that the Jews thought you had to do in order to also be a good Christian. And so, you know, word got out that we are essentially free from this, uh, what again had amounted to be a pretty overbearing religious system. Now, uh, what's true and what we need to understand as Christians is that we are free from the law, which brings condemnation and death. Paul, the writer of this letter, wrote elsewhere um, that we're free from the law that introduces condemnation and death, right? The law points at us and says, you are guilty, right? It condemns us and then also condemns us to death. Uh, and so what's true is that properly understanding what it means to be a Christian who's been made right with God um, I'm not under that condemnation, nor am I subject to the death uh, that it threatens me with. Um, but in the understanding of I am free from the law, uh, there are three things I just want to say are really, really true about what that means, and then I'll share with you something that's not true. Uh, for one, when I say I'm free from the law, what I mean is I'm free from micromanagement. How many of you like to be micromanaged? Um, how many of you like to have like every kind of detail or facet of what you do let's say at work or in some other place that you find yourself, being managed by another kind of overlording personality. Anybody like that? No, that drives you crazy, right? You're thinking, hey, I'm an intelligent being. I can do stuff, right? How many of you have a t-shirt that says, I can do stuff? I've seen that every once in a while. And so when somebody micromanages us, we find that very, very frustrating. And the law had come to, because of, um, uh, often the way it was interpreted and applied in life, it had come to micromanage every aspect of a person's law. Secondly, I'm free from being ruled by fear. Uh, what certainly would have been true uh, for many Jewish people uh, as they 
attempted to live according to God's law um, is that their compliance with the law was essentially compelled. Uh, the law stood over them with all of its rules and regulations, um, and it was a kind of authority in their lives that they had to follow or else they would be punished, right? So there was always this threat of punishment looming for disobedience. Um, and the law, besides that, it didn't have any regard for a person's desires. It didn't have any regard for what a person wanted or what a person experienced in the way of, des of desire. Neither did the law do anything to help us. Like it didn't, it didn't promote a better kind of internal desire within us. Um, and it didn't offer any help. And so uh, one of the beautiful benefits of being free from the laws, we're free from being ruled uh, by this fear. And then thirdly, I'm free from all the complicated extras, right? So a lot of times when you hear Christians talking about being free from the law, the idea is there's all this extra stuff that people tend to heap onto the law uh, because of their interpretations or their applications that essentially... Um, multiplies the law, right? That then micromanages us and threatens us uh, with fear. So we're free from all the complicated extras. Um, uh, for in Jesus's day and in Paul's day, when uh, the, the average Jewish person, uh, when they were confronted with the law, they were just overwhelmed by it, right? They oftentimes couldn't understand it. Oftentimes they couldn't actually live up to or measure up to all of its standards and requirements. It was very, very inaccessible to the everyday person, kind of like uh, we're in tax season, right? Kind of like the way the Internal Revenue Service tax code might feel to many of us. Um, just daunting, right? Uh, and so we're free from all the complicated extras. But let me tell you something that isn't true. What isn't true is that I'm free from every law. Um, this is, this, this gains popularity in certain circles, this idea that um, that, that you and I are just like, we're, we're free from the law. Um, I can do whatever I want. Uh, that's a very interesting concept, right? Uh, the truth is we aren't actually free from every kind of law. Um, how many of you are free from the law of gravity? No, of course we're not, right? Like, now, we can defy gravity, right? I can get into an airplane, and for a moment I can defy gravity, but I can't act as if I am not subject to the law of gravity and prove it by jumping off a building because I'll find out very quickly I'm not actually free from that law. So the Corinthians, they had this slogan, everything is permissible. And they twisted the meaning of that, right? So there's, there's something true um, within that slogan. The, the, again, the idea of what it means to be free from the law, but they twisted the meaning of it. They essentially came to believe that they were free to do as they wished. Whatever it is that they desired, whatever it is that they wanted, they were free to do. What they didn't realize, though, is that true freedom isn't defined by an absolute lack of restrictions. A lot of times, that's the way we look at freedom. Like, what is freedom? Well, freedom means fewer and fewer and fewer restrictions on my life, fewer and fewer things that are telling me what I need to do or what I should not do, right? But Freedom isn't defined by simply a lack of restrictions. Like, if I could get close to zero restrictions, then the more I'll be free. And so in that sense, maybe freedom uh, isn't what we think it is. 
Uh, so Paul refutes the slogan. Uh, everything is permissible. Paul refutes the slogan in two ways. And by looking at these two ways, I'd like for us to have an understanding of the interplay of things like freedom uh, and things like desire and things like our will. So let's look at the first refutation. Paul says, again, quoting the Corinthian church, everything is permissible for me. But, Paul says, and here's his refute, but not everything is beneficial, right? Like you can have the attitude that I can do everything, and Paul's just pointing out, okay, well, granted that you are permitted to do anything, one thing you need to realize is that not everything is good. Not everything I can do is good to do. Hello? There's a lot of things I can do. Just because I can't do them doesn't mean it's good for me to do them. Not everything that's within my power to do or within my will to accomplish advances the cause of what is good, whether it's something that is good for my life or good for the lives of others. Uh, we probably generally agree um, with these sentiments, but what if we reframe the statement with the language of will and desire, which is what we're talking about this morning? I'd say it this way. Not everything I want to do is what I should will to do. Not everything that I want to do is what I should will to do. Uh, what I'm doing there is I'm making a statement that requires that this concept that we call will and this concept that we call desire be two different things. For much of human history, we have believed as human beings that these two things are different, that will and desire are two different things. But unfortunately, we are finding in our day that rather than those two things being held as different, they've brought them being brought closer and closer together until they're almost indistinguishable. It is, there's been a time where something like goodwill uh, has been understood as a voluntary action uh, to do something that is truly good or to abstain from doing something that is not good. Uh, uh, even when, or especially when, a person's desires were the opposite of what uh, might be considered goodwill. Uh, you know, for instance, um, heroism was seen as uh, an act of the will, right? A person that did something heroic, uh, were, they were described as such because they, they, they willed to act in a way that was contrary to a desire, like the desire for self-preservation, say. Right? We all know that the desire to preserve ourselves, to protect ourselves is a really, really strong desire, right? So what is heroism? Well, heroism is essentially laying aside that desire and willing ourselves to act even in the midst of danger, right? Um, uh, a virtuous person was a person who chose to do a virtuous thing, even though or despite they had this competing desire to do otherwise. That is, they wanted to do such and such, but they willed to do the more virtuous thing in its place. Now, the ethic of Jesus, and by extension, the ethic of Christianity, would maintain a similar distinction between a person's desires and a person's will. Uh, and it wouldn't be surprised at all to find just how different 
those two things can be. That will and desire can oftentimes be very, very much at odds with one another. Now today, that ethic, I think, has changed and changed a lot, right? Like I said, the distance between will and desire has been shortened to the point where it's really all but gone. Um, how a desire is measured is less about comparing it to an outside fixed standard and more about weighing it with, well, is it good for you, right? That would be one of the very common questions a person might ask when trying to determine whether or not something is good. Is it good for you? Uh, that, of course, is a very subjective test, is it not? Um, not only is it subjective, but potentially even dangerous and deceitful, right? Uh, how many of you have ever wanted something that wasn't good, right? And like for you to act on that thing would truly have been to your detriment. Um, is it what you want? Uh, uh, Dallas Willard, a pretty famous writer, theologian, he makes the case that in our culture, we have lost the idea of this fixed standard of what is good. Uh, it's as if we don't even know what is good anymore. Uh, if someone, he says, if someone wants to know uh, a lot about mathematics, well, we know where to send them, right? We know where to point a person so that they can go and find out a lot about mathematics. But uh, if, a someone, if somebody comes along and wants to know how to be a good person, we find ourselves oftentimes confused about where we should send them because the idea of goodness, instead of being this fixed standard, that is not subjective, but rather is this objective reality that doesn't change with the times. It doesn't change with the ebb and flow of culture. It doesn't change with our changing belief systems. It stays there, fixed, remained. What is good is good because God has ordered it to be good, right? Like that concept has been really uh, dismantled from the way so many of us think. And so our will starts to blend with desire. Um, what is good is seen more as, well, what is good for me? What is it that I want? And that's how we have come to define goodness. The problem with that is that we have turned um, will and desire into essentially the same thing. Now, um, when that happens, real will becomes a weak force in our lives. Um, I believe that that will ought to be a really, really strong and powerful force in our lives. The fact that we have the capacity to will to do something that even goes against some of our strongest desires. Um, but will becomes weakened, uh, especially today. It becomes weakened because we can do just about anything we want to do, right? Like, how, how accessible is practically everything to you and to me to satisfy whatever particular desires or cravings we might have, right? Like we have, the world is our oyster. And, and, and the fact that everything is so easily accessible has actually created a weakened form of human will because we can do just about anything we want to do. Um, there's been a progression when it comes to like how human beings have interacted with food. Right? There's, uh, for much of human history, food was scarce. It was hard to come by. And so a person could sit there um, with hunger pains and think, as much as I want that, that is, as much as I want that food, it is outside my will to make it so. Sometimes, no matter how badly you wanted to eat something, 
It just wasn't accessible to you. Um, but then comes along uh, the invention of the marketplace. And in the marketplace, it brings together all kinds of food that it makes available for a community. And so now that food becomes more accessible. And so when I want something, I can go to the market and I can get it. Well, maybe I couldn't get everything I wanted. And so that's why we had to take it a step further, right? And make supermarkets, right? Markets, those aren't good enough. We need supermarkets. We need aisles and aisles and aisles and aisles of endless options for you and I to consume. Well, that also wasn't enough, right? Because, I, I mean, you got to go to the market, you got to buy the food, you got to pay for the food, you got to bring it home, you got to open it up, you got to prepare it, cook it, all that stuff. I want somebody to make the food for me, right? And so we invented the fast food restaurant. And we said, I want a hamburger and I want it right now. Uh, we said, well, that's not good enough. We just, so we created the drive-through window, right? Like we're, we're making it possible for us to have at our fingertips everything that we could possibly want. It's gotten so bad that fast food wasn't enough. Now, there are services out there. Some of you don't know this yet, but there are services out there that, believe it or not, will bring that fast food to you wherever you are. Can you believe it, right? Um, the idea is this, I want that, I will have that. All of the space between those things has been obliterated. It's gone, right? I want it, click, 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 ding dong, right? I have it. Um, I, uh, somebody turned me on a few weeks ago to intermittent fasting. How many of you ever tried intermittent fasting? Or just fasting in general. Um, and, and I, 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 I realized something in doing that, right? It reminded me of the difference between what I can do and what I will do, right? I, there are periods of time in the day where I, I want to eat. I love eating. Um, and then, you know, if I'm committed to this thing, then my will has to override that desire and say, no, 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 that's not for now, right? And, and listen, I do this. You come to my office, right? I, I, in my chair, up and to the right, I have a cabinet, a store full of all kinds of candy and nuts and snacks, right? They're all just sitting there. Some of them are sitting there for months, right, because of, um, because of this, 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 you know, this thing I'm trying to do. And so, again, it just reminded me there's, a, there's supposed to be a distance between will and desire. Uh, technology has also just totally messed with our will. Uh, all the screens that are in front of us, uh, the, the blazing fast internet, right? It used to be when you wanted to know something, you had to drive or ride your bike to the library, and you had to go and look at microfiche, right, to discover the answer for something, right? Um, some of you don't know what that is, but that's okay. Uh, now we just have, like, the, the internet is fast, and it's just getting faster and faster, and yet never fast enough. Or uh, there's television programming. And so what we're saying is, I want something to entertain me, and I will have that. A couple clicks with the remote, and boom, there it is, right? And now I am being entertained. Uh, uh, the problem is, because of that, I'm never alone with my thoughts. I'm never in a place where I can think deeper things. Uh, uh, isn't it sad like how a lot of times we, we observe this in childhood behavior, kids that are just constantly on screens, 
completely losing the ability to be creators in this world. Did you know that part of what we were put in this earth to do is to create? It was to, to make something. It was to live our lives with purpose. But when we just plant ourselves down on the couch and scroll, scroll, scroll on our phones or binge watch, whatever happens to be the fair for today, uh, we just, uh, like our will to actually do something intentional and purposeful and meaningful is ruined. Our relationships are suffering. Um, we have a desire to be in relationship with other people. Uh, but a lot of times because of the, the cost of actually having a good and healthy committed relationship, a lot of times we just give in to non-committed relationships. Um, uh, people just hook up or engage in you know, some uh, just kind of casual sexual behavior um, with a, another person, uh, uh, or leverage something like pornography, right? All of these things are basically saying, I want that, I will have that. Um, and so our, 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 our will is, uh, is weakened. Uh, we give in to our desires with the reasoning, well, I can't help it, you know? In other words, I can't be expected to will what I don't want. There's something that I want, and therefore something that I must will to be. It's almost like our desires have predetermined our choices, right? And this has just gotten wildly out of control. Uh, the the so-called progress in modern psychology and expressive individualism, uh, individualism it, it, it provides us a new kind of morality. Um, the way we evaluate things morally, instead of up against the fixed standard that never changes, now we say, well, um, what do you think is good? Um, you know, what is it that you want? And, and, then, and then we go on to tell a person that we are asking that question to, to be careful not to suppress whatever desires or inclinations that they may have, right? The, 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 the very act of suppressing those desires will just ultimately amount to repressive behavior, which is considered to be very, very uh, unhealthy, right? And so is that, in fact, what's going on there? Are we, are we just becoming victims of repression, which of course is not good, or are we trying to maintain a distinction between our will and our desire, right? Um, so Paul says not everything is beneficial for us. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Well, should we then aim for having less desire? Like, is that the objective, that I should just have less desire going on in my life? After all, if my desire is lessened, will that help me to get along better in life without all the trouble of all those difficult emotions and feelings and wants, right? Uh, many of which go unmet. Well, uh, let me tell you, that is precisely the opposite of what God wants for us. God does not want for us to become less less desirous as, as beings. God created us with desire. He loves the fact that we have a capacity for desire. Neither is God afraid of our desires. He doesn't want us to become people of less desire, but rather people of truly deep and passionate desire. Um, when it comes to my own desires, then, the fact that a desire might exist does not mean that it is good for me to fulfill it. What I need to do is I need to find the good that is outside of myself, which I find in God and God's law, uh, or we might call 
uh, something like, I'm surrendering to Jesus' lordship. So everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Secondly, Paul says, uh, again, quoting them, everything is permissible for me, but now his second refutation is this, but I will not be mastered by anything. That is, I will not be brought under the authority and power of any of those things that I desire, right? Um, now, this is a really, really important thing for us to understand uh, spiritually. And that is, we all fall under the authority of something or someone. We all do. Like some of you are thinking here, no, 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 not me. I am autonomous. I am a free agent. I do what I want. I get what I want. I go where I want, right? No. Every single one of us exists under the authority of something or someone. The question we have to face is, well, what or who is it? The Corinthian church, they thought they were free to do whatever pleased them without any boundaries or restraints. Um, they would have seen the boundaries or restraints as oppressive. Uh, but Paul is hinting here at an even worse prison than the one they had before they were in Christ. Um, uh, we can, and they could think that we are free to do some particular thing, but it is that thought that can be the very thing that imprisons us. Um, imagine, so Paul uses this example. I just want you to imagine a religion that was so free, right? The boundaries were pushed out so far that participating in prostitution were allowed. Right? That's, that's kind of the, that's the direction that Paul takes this thing, if you read on in these verses. Right? Imagine if you were subscribed to a religion where the moral boundaries were pushed so far that it was acceptable for people to engage in prostitution. Imagine that. Um, those people might say something like, we are so free. Look at us. Right? I mean, I don't know what the size of that congregation is, right? But, I mean, we are so free. But then Paul, he takes that and he shows them that the very thing that they think represents their freedom, it actually shows them just how much they are enslaved. He says, for you have joined yourself to the prostitute. This is what you've done. You have become one with her. Right? Of course, like he's speaking largely to, to men, but this applies in both directions. So you have, by taking that person, you have made yourself one with that person, and now she owns you. That's what Paul's saying. There very easily could have been this way of thinking that says um, a person could just shrug off an encounter. Like what is described here. Just shrug it off as, hey, well, that's something that my body did. That's not really something that I did. But Paul says you actually tied yourself spiritually to that encounter because in Paul's theology, the body and the soul can't be separated from one another. This is what makes so many of our conversations today very, very difficult. The idea that the human being can be compartmentalized between his or her soul and his or her body, as if the two aren't necessarily connected. The truth is, though, what is done in one impacts 
the other. Regardless of what you may think, what is done in one impacts the other. That's the point of why Paul says, you have made yourself one with her, and now she owns you. She has become your master. You belong to her, right? You think you're free, but you're actually a slave. Also, when we start to think that all desire is permittable, then we lose the ability to desire, right? When, when we start thinking that, like, everything is available to us, and there is an infinite number of options from which we can pick or choose depending on our own particular fancy, what ends up happening, and this is the really, really sad state of affair for such a person that is given into this kind of notion, we lose the ability to desire. That desire that God says is good, that desire that God says is beautiful, that desire that God created for us to experience and flourish in, that desire that in its primary purpose brings us into the presence of God. It drives us to God. You wonder what all our desires are about. Let me just kind of short circuit the end of the message here. It's to drive us to God but we actually lose the ability to desire. We end up with desire dysfunction. We don't actually know what to do when we are presented with every possibility or with endless options. You know who knows this? Car salesmen. Right? You ever go buy a car? And if you say to the car person there, the person that's going to sell you the car, I would like to look at every one of your cars. They're not going to do that, right? What they understand is that you cannot handle as a human being, as a finite being with limited capacity, you and I, we can't handle all of the possibilities that are out there on the parking lot. They know that they have to get you to want a particular car badly enough that you'll pull the trigger and close the sale. They know that they have to focus your attention on one, right? As soon as you start thinking about, well, maybe there's, you know, let me just boil it down to these four or five options. I'm going to go home. I'm going to sleep on it. They know there's a really good chance you're just not going to buy a car. Um, the human heart can't handle infinite desire. We end up becoming paralyzed by all the choices, right? We walk away saying, I don't want a car anymore. <laughs> I'll just keep driving my car. Or I'm going to start taking the bus. And so here's where the prison comes in. When we think we are free, it's the freedom, the thought that we have freedom, that's what traps us. If I see everything that's out there, every, every moral choice as an equally valid moral choice that is ultimately determined by how I personally and subjectively weigh them for myself, myself if that's how I see things, that everything is a viable option, I will be paralyzed in promoting the desires which are the most good to the efforts of my will. Instead of, instead of taking all of those desires that are in me and promoting the best ones for my will to act upon, I will find myself paralyzed. And I'm not going to will to do what's best if it's a lot more difficult than all the other options. And because I'm alive, the very fact that there is molecular and cellular motion occurring within this human frame and your human frame, I and you, we have to do something. None of us can sit still. 
None of us cannot do, right? As human beings, alive in this world, we have to act. And if my will isn't directing my actions, if my will has become so suppressed and so weakened that it is no longer informing the result of my actions, then impulse becomes my default. Any of you ever done anything by impulse, right? Reacted? Like, where does that come from? Uh, if I'm at home and I'm hungry and I say to Renee, hey, you know, what do you think we should have for dinner, right? And then she, uh, she rattles off three or four or five suggestions, and then I think, wow, you know, here's three or four or five other options, right? And now all of a sudden we have 15 different things that we can choose from. I'm just going to end up eating a bag of chips, right? Have you ever done that before? What is that? That's, that's impulse. That's I'm hungry. I'm going to satisfy that urge, that impulse, with what I've got right here at hand. And we do that with far more important things than what we choose for our next meal. When we start letting our desire determine what we do rather than our will, we essentially find ourselves living a much degraded form of the human life that God wants for us. When we are driven by impulse, by real desire, or real desire becomes less potent in our lives. If I impulsively eat greasy, salty food, and then I wash it down with a sugary drink, the desire for healthy food is going to weaken. If I impulsively satisfy the need for sexual gratification, the desire for relationship is going to weaken. If I impulsively satisfy the need for entertainment, scrolling social media, binge-watching a TV show, the desire to create things, the desire to live with real purpose will weaken. If I impulsively one-click on Amazon and a few moments later a box arrives on my doorstep, the ability for me to live with contentment when all my wants are not fulfilled will be weakened. And so Paul says, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Uh, this uh, amounts to another slogan, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, right? And so this slogan came to mean something like, we can eat and drink whatever we please. We're not under, um, you know, some particular law that tells us what we could eat or not eat, like the kosher laws that the Jewish people would have followed. Um, apparently, they took this slogan, though, and they brought it into the areas of of sexual expression. And so they uh, basically were able to justify any illicit sexual encounter with, and so the body is for sex and sex is for the body. And, and so where Paul would agree with the first, that is, yeah, you can eat and drink whatever you want, right? Like there's no, there's no moral code that regulates what we eat or drink. However, the idea that that also applies to other areas of our lives doesn't follow, right? Because he says food and the stomach are both for this, for this time and for this place, right? They, they, they're, they're of no eternal consequence. Your body, however, though, your body and my body is not destined for destruction. Your body and my body is destined for resurrection. And so what we do with our bodies does actually matter. We can't separate between how I see myself and, um, uh, and like separate that from like, like who I am in body, soul, and spirit. 
Right? Uh, we moderns, we are, we are growing more likely to see ourselves as merely our minds and our consciousness, um, our soul, if you will. Uh, we have developed a very low view of the body, as if the body really isn't part of us and therefore it doesn't matter. Um, a person's identity is defined by their personality, by their wants and their desires, their mind and their sense of self. And so the body becomes irrelevant. And what we do with our bodies adopts some of this irrelevance along with it, right? The idea is, well, you can do whatever you want with your body because the body doesn't matter. Your, uh, what you are or who you are as a person is what matters. Uh, how you see yourself is what matters. But again, the truth is our bodies are not, in fact, irrelevant, right? Um, this is not a Christian view of the material world that God created and that God put us in. I am not merely my soul. Rather, I am my soul in my body. We are embodied beings where the body is an intrinsic part of who we are. Um, take an example from what we know about uh, people who experience trauma, right? Uh, for people that experience trauma, their bodies tell a story, right? Trauma doesn't just purely exist in the mind or in memories. Our bodies hold what trauma we have walked through. I don't just feel something in my mind and my emotions or re recollect something in my memories. Rather, we might say, I can feel this in my bones. And so Paul's point is that we are actually free from, uh, from absolute moral restrictions on what we eat and drink. Um, in chapter 8, you know, we'll talk about how there are some, um, how a love and respect for other people might modify what we eat and what we drink, uh, like the freedom that we have in that. But that freedom can't be brought over and applied to the appetites of more consequence, like sexual appetites. Um, the body isn't destined for destruction, but for resurrection, and so it deserves to be managed accordingly. We often, uh, we treat the body as disposable because we live in a disposable world, right? We purposely don't build things to last forever anymore. I'll bet you years ago when you walked into a store to buy something and there was a salesperson there, that person would say, hey, this thing is a tank. This is the last one you'll ever have to buy. They don't do that anymore, right? Now you buy something in the store and the cashier says, would you like to buy the service plan with that? Because they know it's going to break the moment you get it home, right? Our wants and our desires are treated as disposable commodities in this disposable world. We build entire enterprises on those wants and desires. There are people that are just profit-making machines that are taking advantage of the things that I want and the things that you want, whether or not those things are in fact good for us. It used to be that desire played a key role in forming us as people, like in making us into something, right? The desires that we held, the desires that we often held in tension, the desires that we often held with an inability to actually will those things to be done. They formed us. They made us into substantial people. Like you could only do so much. There was only so much available that some of your desire, some of my desire had to go unmet. And so what happens in a healthy person is those, all those desires that we have, they're carefully pruned so that the best and the most good desires remain. They rise to the top, if you will. And they are the things that are given attention to and the thing that our will 
acts upon. Um, uh, This is why Paul commands in uh, verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality, right? Uh, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God? You are not your own. You you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Um, We have to come to understand that there is incredible beauty that can be found in all the desires that go unmet in our lives. If we'll just allow ourselves to be awakened to what those desires are and not just simply reach into the cupboard every time our stomach growls. If we'll not just, you know, pull up whatever the app of choice happens to be on our phone when we find ourselves with a moment of boredom. If we don't just constantly feed those urges, those impulses in our lives, then perhaps we can be reawakened to see the distinction between our desires and our will. Like I said a while ago, our unmet desires, what they'll do is they will tend to steer us towards something outside of us. Um, You read through the stories of so many people in the Bible. You read through the stories of so many Christians who have gone on before us. Uh, Many of those stories are just full of unmet desire, wishes for something that never came to be, hopes that something might be different from the way it was, that oftentimes went unfulfilled. And what happened in the cases of countless people who walked closely with God and said, I am not going to let my desire and my will become the same thing. I am going to will what is good. I'm going to understand that some of the desires, good desires even, that I have in my life will go unmet. I'm not going to shortcut so that I can meet that desire with a, a, a second best option. Rather, I'm going to live with that desire as being unmet. And what happened for people who were committed to that way of living, God became a destination for those desires. Hope in God, belief in God became food and fuel for those best desires to be held in longing anticipation. You know, we rob ourselves of some of the best things for us when we impulsively allow our desires to be met instead of allowing those unmet desires to drive us toward God, toward God's love and toward God's faithfulness. I love um, what C.S. Lewis said in one of his books, essentially this. He said, when a Christian is suddenly awakened to a deep spiritual thought, the devil's best play is to remind him it's time for lunch. As the man goes to feed his belly, he will quickly forget the important thing that had moments before captured his attention. I'm going to invite the band to come, and um, we're just going to close out our time this morning um, with a few moments of, of worship, of reflection, and of prayer. So I'm just going to invite you as, um, as they lead us in song to just think about, God, where is it that maybe my, um, my desire has essentially amounted to my will?
Where is it that instead of seeking what is truly good, I have more resolve to define for myself what is good? And because I'm able to, because I can, because everything is so accessible, I willed it to be, and it was. What might be an area in your life, in my life, that we need to surrender to God 